Thousands took to the streets of Washington, D.C. yesterday to commemorate the 58th anniversary of the historic March on Washington for jobs and freedom. This year, the focus was voting rights, with a new generation of activists denouncing voter suppression and demanding fair access to the vote for all, insisting that the vision Martin Luther King expressed in his I Have a Dream speech in 1963 be deferred no longer. On today's show, our 2019 interview with Professor William P. Jones, Vice President of the Labor and Working Class History Association and author of The March on Washington, Jobs, Freedom, and the Forgotten History of Civil Rights. And on Labor History in Two, defense industry workers strike on the eve of World War II. I'm Chris Garlock. And that's all ahead on this week's Labor History Today. Here's the show. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. It was the final speech of a long day, August 28, 1963, when hundreds of thousands gathered on the Mall for the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. In a resounding cadence, Martin Luther King Jr. lifted the crowd when he told of his dream that all Americans would join together to realize the founding ideal of equality. The power of the speech created an enduring symbol of the march and the larger civil rights movement. King's speech still inspires us more than 50 years later, but its very power has also narrowed our understanding of the march. In his insightful history, the March on Washington, Jobs, Freedom, and the Forgotten History of Civil Rights, published in 2014, William P. Jones restores the march to its full significance. I spoke to Professor Jones recently on my Your Rights at Work show on WPFW 89.3 FM here in Washington, D.C. He's a professor of history at the University of Minnesota and vice president of the Labor and Working Class History Association. I began by asking him about how he thinks our perception of King's speech has changed over the years. What's happened to the speech is that it's gotten sort of taken out of context. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think it's important to keep in mind that that speech uh, was one of 10 speeches. Uh, it was the last of 10 speeches. Um, and so by the time Dr. King gave that speech, his goal was to rile people up, to uplift people after a really long day and send them home, you know, sort of inspired and dedicated to continue the struggle. But his goal was not to explain why they were all there. And one reason he didn't do that, he actually had a speech um, that was drafted that he started to give that was much more specific in terms of what the goals of the march were. But he threw it out, and he went back to the I Have a Dream refrain, which he had given repeatedly over the previous few years. Um, and he did that because he, he wanted a really inspiring route speech, which he got. And that's why we know about it. The, 
fantastic speech. Uh, but by taking it out, by only knowing that speech, we lose sight of the other speeches, which were actually much more specific about what the goals of the march were, um, the the objectives of the, the demands of the march. Um, and, and in fact, when King finished, um, A. Philip Randolph, who was the... Uh, the leader of the march, and Baird Rustin, who was the primary organizer of the march, came up on stage and read the full list of demands. Um, so what we get from King's speech is is a really rousing, uplifting speech, but one that's actually very vague about what the actual goals of the march were. I think that's the downside to focusing completely on it. No, and I'm wondering if that's why, especially it just seems like in the last few years, I mean, there's just, I can't think of it offhand, but there's some really odd people have sort of taken pieces of it and, and used it. And on the one hand, I'm thinking, okay, you know, it's Dr. King and, and it's all good. On the other hand, uh, it just seems like it's gotten kind of, of, of twisted. And, uh, and, and I think your point is exactly right up being taken out of context. Now, I want to, I want to ask you to address specifically, you know, the title of your book is The March on Washington. I think a lot of people think they know what the March on Washington was about. But I, I know that a lot of times people forget it was the March for Jobs Freedom. Uh, and then your, your, book goes on to say, and the forgotten history of the civil rights. So what are what are your thoughts about what that forgotten history is? Well, one is that the, the, the idea of the March on Washington uh, emerged actually initially 20 years earlier than the 1963 March. In 1941, uh, A. Philip Randolph, uh, the black labor leader, um, a socialist, uh, called a march for jobs. Um, and he, it was to protest discrimination in the armed forces during the Second World War and in the defense industry factories that were gearing up to support the war. Um, and out of that march came, uh, he actually called that march off at the last minute when President Roosevelt created the FEPC, the Fair Employment Practices Commission, which banned employment discrimination by defense contractors. Um, and that actually, that was a, it was a wartime executive order uh, that was a temporary order. And when A. Philip Randolph called off the march in 1941, he said, we're going to have to continue to organize and to protest to make sure that this victory lasts, that it's a lasting victory. Um, and the goal was to have a permanent law banning employment discrimination by any employer. And that actually wouldn't be realized until 1964 when it was included in as Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So part of the point that I make with the, um, with the book is that we think of this as this sort of moment in 1963, but it's actually part of a very long history of pushing for civil rights, but a history in which central to the push for civil rights is the demand for economic justice. Um, so the the, the idea of getting, getting a job, a decent job at a decent wealth, uh, a decent wage, um, was always from the very beginning uh, a, the, a central goal of the civil rights movement. And um, I think if we know that longer history, it helps us really understand what the objectives of the 1963 march were. So, Will, this is Ed Smith again. Um, so, in 1941, 
Randolph wants to do a a, a, a march. Uh, I guess Roosevelt, because he was powerful enough to scare Roosevelt. Roosevelt said, "Okay, we're going to uh, try to end discrimination in in the military." But 1941 was kind of the beginning of our entry into the war, and as far as I know, my history, the um, armed forces remained segregated through the entirety of the war and did not become desegregated until, I guess, the Korean War. What what specific gains did Randolph get in exchange for kind of not doing that march? Or, or am I asking the wrong question? No, that's a great question. And actually, it was an extremely controversial decision. A lot of people uh, who were involved in organizing the march were angry at him and felt that he had sort of blinked too early. Um, right. There is a question as to you know, how big the march would have been. We don't know. Um, some people said it was going to... Randolph at the time was saying 100,000 people were going to show up in the, in the capital. Um, other, you know, other people said it would be much smaller than that. Um, so it wasn't clear, you know, how much... Some people said he was bluffing. You know, who knows? Right, um, right. we don't know if he had the, any bullets the, in the gun or not. Right. The, um, the specific... The most important gain that he got was this executive order that Roosevelt uh, issued that prohibited federal contractors from or from discriminating on the basis of race. Um, so, and this was actually a bigger issue than the armed forces itself. This okay. was this applied to um, you know all the like the automakers that were retooling to build airplanes and and tanks um, and trucks for the military. It was actually before Pearl Harbor, so the U.S. wasn't actually in the war. But this was the period in which the U.S. was what Roosevelt called the arsenal of democracy. Mm -hmm. They were preparing, they were building the equipment that would then be uh, sold to the Allies in Europe uh, for the fight against fascism. Um, and so this, and this essentially, this mobilization, before the U.S. entered the war, this mobilization essentially ended the Great Depression. Uh, for white workers. It meant that there was, you know, very low unemployment rates. Um, unions were very powerful because of the tight labor market. You know, they could demand wage increases. Um, and so if you had a job in a defense plant, uh, particularly coming out of the Great Depression, this was a tremendous boon. And most of these defense plants maintained pretty strict racial bans on employment. So black men were routinely turned away from these jobs. Um, and it's one thing that people pointed out was that these jobs were only created because of federal tax money that was going into um, investing in the in the mobilization. So here was federal money, you know, tax money being spent going into the pockets of workers um, that black of, for jobs that black workers could not get. And that was the that was actually the principal goal of the March on Washington in 1941, was to end that situation. They did also want uh, integration and a ban, an end to discrimination in the armed forces. Um, and they got the, they got only the, the, the defense and contracts ban. Um, so the, the integration of the armed forces wouldn't come late, wouldn't come until after the war and determined. Um, and that was part of the contract.
the black press compared this to the Emancipation Proclamation. I'm saying that this was the first time really since Reconstruction that the federal government had done anything to really protect the um, the, the interests of Africa. Now, do you know if it played out in, in, in fact over the course of... You mean, in, yeah, so that's... I mean, that's a really, it's, it's a very Probably hard complicated answer. history. Yeah, but, I would think so. Um, so, they, I mean, Roosevelt set up this commission. He kind of purposely underfunded it. <laughs> he gave it very little power to actually uh, do anything. Um, there were places where it was very effective, and that was places where uh, there were black civil rights organizations and African-Americans in unions mm-hmm. who could mobilize on the ground to kind of hold the defense industry accountable. So one place where they actually did that very effectively was Detroit. They had, where the NAACP was massive um, and grew very rapidly during the Second World War. Um, Black workers had a foothold in the unions, in the auto unions, and they used that to hold the, you know, hold demonstrations, to bring people to hearings and tell how they had been turned away from jobs, and to kind of publicly embarrass these employers. Um, and there, it was effective. Um, in places like uh, they tried to hold hearings in Birmingham, um, Alabama, uh, there um, it was very difficult to, you know, these employers were kind of open. They didn't, they weren't embarrassed by being um, <laughs> exposed as racist. And um, the and the, the labor movement was largely dominated by white workers who didn't really support this. So um, it depended on where you were. Um, Randolph's position was that this was a a massive, a major symbolic victory. I mean, if we think about it, remember, I mean, the reality was the Emancipation Proclamation didn't free any slaves either. It only applied uh, to Confederate states who were already outside of the country. So that was a symbolic victory. And so that comparison is is asked. Um, He said that it will, it is going to get, it did get probably hundreds of thousands of jobs for black workers. Um, but he also said that it set a precedent that could be built upon. And um, immediately after the Second World War, uh, he helped to create an organization called the National Council for a Permanent FEPC, which is effectively the first African-American lobby that was based in Washington, D.C. Um, and their principal job was to pass what they called FEPC laws, um, of federal law banning employment discrimination. Um, a This was actually, this would be introduced into Congress almost every session between 1945 and 1964, um, and then rejected. Um, where they were very effective was actually passing state and local laws. Uh, so New York City passed an FEPC law, um, I believe in 1945. Um, actually, Minneapolis, where I live, uh, passed one. Uh, a number of states passed these laws, and those laws were effective and went on the books um, and operated uh, until, again, until 1964, when one of the most important objectives of the March in 63 was to put what and the language they used at the time was to add an FEPC clause to the Civil Rights Bill that John F. Kennedy had introduced in 1963. Um, Kennedy never supported this clause. He said that, you know, this was um, this would actually target northern employers uh, who would um, would lead to a sort of revolt uh, against 
northern moderates, largely northern Republicans, who might support a law, um, you know, targeting Jim Crow segregation in the South, but they're not going to support a law that's targeting employment discrimination. Right. In Kennedy, Kennedy was always counting votes, wasn't he? That's right. And so the and the the march, I think one of the major you know achievements of the march was to build a coalition of civil rights and labor organizations that did back that FEPC law. Um, and you know, in hindsight, I think a lot of people would argue that the most important part of the 1964 Civil Rights Act is Title VII, which bans uh, employment discrimination based on race, religion, uh, and gender. We'll be back with the rest of our interview with William Jones, professor of history at the University of Minnesota and vice president of the Labor and Working Class History Association. But first, let's check out this week's cool things from the George Meany Labor Archives. So we're here at the Meany Labor Archives of the University of Maryland College Park. I'm the archive specialist, Alan, and I'm here with our student assistant, Chloe. Um, Chloe, what did you pull today? So I pulled two documents, one of which is a memorandum from Borge Siskin to President Meany uh, from May 31st, 1961. And we're sort of looking at it in conversation with this telegraph that we've pulled from August 1st, 1962. And both are talking about the freedom rides in the civil rights movement. Okay, um, so what do you notice, anything specific, like what really fascinates you about these documents? I thought it was interesting, this document from uh, 1961, the first paragraph of it talks about the union members who were involved in some of the struggles for civil rights and how some of them were beaten up in Birmingham. Um, And then when we look to the telegraph that we have next to it, which is from about a year later, we see that things have really escalated and more than 200 people were arrested, including Martin Luther King and Ralph Abernathy, Um, despite the fact that these protests were fundamentally nonviolent. A loss of violence not only did occur, but was really like expected even at the start of all of these. I think it's also worth to note that this uh, this original telegram here um, is actually sent to President George Meany from Wyatt T. Walker, who is the executive assistant to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Um, and as well, um, for the Freedom Ride document, it actually links to a, um, an original 1961 um, labor documentary on the Freedom Rides that we actually uploaded onto our YouTube channel. Um, and it's basically, it looks at like the Freedom Rides and it's narrated by James Farmer, who's a Freedom Rider. And it's a primary source document that we highly recommend checking out. Um, all right. We're talking to Will Jones. He's the author of The March on Washington, Jobs, Freedom, and the Forgotten History of Civil Rights. This is uh, Your Rights at Work with Chris Garlock and Ed Smith. Well, I want to, in the time we have remaining, connect this to what's going on today, and there's a lot of different ways to to do that. But I'm, I guess, one of the things I see a lot with civil rights is is that folks, you know, will will kind of say, well, you know, especially with all of the, there's been a lot of 50th anniversaries that have been coming around, um, and so that's been an opportunity to talk about, you know, how far we've come and how different things are, and and yet. Maybe not so much. So I'm curious, having written this book, what your take on that is. Well, I mean, part of what I I think I take away from the history that I tell in the book is that it's important to recognize where there were substantial and real victories. I mean, we can, you know, we can 
we can spend a lot of time, and I think we should talk about the limitations of those victories. Um, but this was a, a mass mobilization. It was led by um, working class black people um, and joined by a lot of working class white people, people of a lot of different races um, and, and, and middle class people. Um, it at the time was the, the largest demonstration in American history. Um, and it had a profound impact on policy. Um, the, the way in which it changed the civil rights laws that were passed uh, in 1964 and in 1965, um, the way in which it uh, sort of shaped the connection or made the connection between demands for racial equality, things like voting rights and integration, and demands for, uh, for economic justice, for decent jobs, decent housing. Um, this had a profound impact on the sort of national conversation around the right um, and labor. I think it, it, you know, I think it it affected the labor movement in a really important way. So um, I, I think we need to recognize that that type of mobilization can be very effective. Um, it's important to recognize how that's done. I think, and I pay a lot of attention in the book to just how do how do you mobilize that number of people. Um, do it in an effective way. Um, but I, I think it's, you know, we while we should pay attention to the limitations of victories, I think we can't let that allow us, allow that to make us cynical about the possibility for change. No, go ahead, Chris. Well, no, I'm just, I, I'd love you to delve uh, just a little bit into, I mean, as, as an organizer of, of, you know, a coordinator or supporter of rallies and being here in DC, and I've been spending some time out at the, uh, the labor archives and seeing some of these original documents by A. Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin. And, and it's just, you know, as somebody who, who works on this stuff, it's just been fascinating. And to think of how they did this, you know, without the internet, you know, right. um, so I'd be fascinated to hear some of your thoughts and... of, 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 of how, how to do that and, and what you think the lessons are for today. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I really was amazed by was in tracing the really long history of it was the um, both the institutions and the sort of personal relationships that went into it. Um, so one example um, I'll give is uh, Anna Arnold Hedgeman, who was the only woman on the organizing committee of the 1963 march. Um, she was a really major figure in um, black politics, in urban politics uh, in the 1950s and 1960s. She's largely, almost completely forgotten. Um, she, uh, she was on that organizing committee in large part because she had uh, a relationship with A. Philip Randolph that went back to the 1930s uh, when she was a leader of the YWCA, and she would invite him to speak uh, at YWCA events um, in New York City. And got, she got very involved in the, in the Black Women's Club movement in that period. Um, as a result of her interactions with him in the 1930s, he asked her to head that uh, National Council for a Permanent FEPC, the first black lobbying organization in Washington, D.C. Um, and she did that very effectively, uh, largely building through black women's clubs uh, in cities around the country and also through churches, both black and white churches. Um, and it was that sort of 
personal relationship that she had with A. Philip Randolph that went back, you know, 30 years before the actual march um, that that allowed him, uh, and she's just one example of all of these people. Another, we've talked about Bayard Rustin, who, you know, they were very close allies, uh, again, going back to the 1940s. Um, but the other thing that came out of that was the institutional base uh, that was mobilized to build these this this march, and so part of it were um, black women's organizations, sororities, and black women's clubs that um, were actually in the 1930s and 40s the largest black organizations in the country. Um, they and they had local chapters in every city across the country, um, which made mobilizing for the 1941 march possible, um, and they continued to sustain these types of mobilizations uh, through the 1960s. Um, Another example of that, of course, is unions, and these were largely unions that either had, you know, significant black uh, membership uh, or unions like A. Philip Randolph's union, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, which was almost entirely African-American and controlled by African-Americans. And again, they had organizations in cities across the country that could mobilize and connect uh, people to a national organization. So in terms of, you know, how do you put something to this, like this together, I think it actually remains the same. I mean, we have the Internet, um, but the Internet isn't doesn't sustain these sort of long-term uh, relationships, personal relationships, and it also doesn't necessarily sustain the organizational network. Uh, that became really critical. That was William Jones, professor of history at the University of Minnesota and vice president of the Labor and Working Class History Association and author of The March on Washington, Jobs, Freedom, and the Forgotten History of Civil Rights. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1941. That's the day 2,500 steelworkers at the Pressed Steel Car Company near McKees Rock, Pennsylvania, walked off the job. It was the second walkout in two weeks. Workers effectively shut down production of armor plate for the Navy, shell forgings for the Army, and railroad cars used to transport military material. The company had gone back on promises of holding a collective bargaining election. Steelworkers Organizing Committee sub-regional director Abe Martin told the Pittsburgh press that while the union had not called the strike, workers had, quote, walked out themselves because they are fed up with the company's discrimination against them. SWAC had been trying to organize the plant for years, but the company had engineered an election for a so-called independent union 18 months earlier when the complex was only operating at half capacity. Workers walked out at the beginning of the month and ended their strike on the guarantee that negotiations for a new election would begin. But when they returned, they found that some were stripped of their seniority while others were forcefully transferred to new departments. The day before, machine shop workers on the afternoon shift were fed up and dropped their tools. Word spread throughout the evening, and by early morning, picket lines were solid and production had come to a complete standstill. When the company tried to force reopening of the plant after Labor Day, 1,500 workers formed picket lines at the gate to stop scabbing. They returned to work 10 days later in compliance with a request by the National Defense Mediation Board. 
The NLRB rejected SWAC's election petition two months later, but SWAC persisted and won exclusive bargaining rights the following June. That'll do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. And even better, if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do, please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Check it out. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and healthy, but do keep making history and see you next time.